morning, second service. How y'all doing? Good. Well, first things first, um, my two sisters are here from the West Coast visiting, and uh, today is my little sister's birthday, and she's here. So would you guys help me in celebrating her birthday? Give her a hand. A happy... A happy birthday, Stephanie, and uh, she's now thoroughly embarrassed, and that's the most successful thing I'll probably do all morning. <laughs> so, so, um, well, Jason well, said earlier, said earlier uh, my name's uh, Pete, uh, and this is my wife, Cassie, and we are, you guys are planning a church next year, and we're heading that up, and I wanted Cassie to come and just uh, read our scripture again uh, that Jazz read earlier and say a prayer for us. Um, she's a great reader and a great prayer, so... She's well qualified, and uh, I just I wanted you to see her face because we're definitely a team in this and uh, on this journey of, of leading a church plant for Highland. All right, I'm reading from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me. God, I'm so amazed that you want us to know who you are. You care about us so much, Lord, that you reveal yourself to us. And Please just prepare uh, our minds and our hearts and even our ears to hear exactly what you would have us to hear today. Amen. Amen. I just want to encourage you guys, um, before I jump in any further, that uh, this time of teaching isn't just me speaking to you. This is you guys also engaging the word with me. So I just want to encourage you that as uh, we move to the next uh, 25 minutes or so, that um, you just take the time throughout and just pray. uh, And just pray in yourself and and just let the truth of God become the truth to you. And uh, pray for me. Pray for some endurance. And just that what I say will be truth. So just want to ask you to do that as we go. Um, well, as uh, Shannon and Jason um, said earlier, we're in the middle of this series, Cultivating Craving. Actually, we're not in the middle. We're at the end. And uh, the whole point of this series that we've been in is asking the question, why don't we produce fruit? Can you guys hear me? Is this on? Okay, I can't hear myself, so I just didn't know. The... Um, So the whole reason of this series is because we're asking the question, why don't we produce fruit? Last week, Jason did a great job of just talking about the disciplines, and um, he talked about, mentioned some of the specific disciplines of prayer, reading, the Bible, fasting, going to church, worshiping, and the whole point of Jason's message was that uh, the disciplines are not the point. Um, The disciplines are a means to an end. And the end is Jesus. The point of fruit is not fruit. The point of discipline is not discipline. The point of fruit is not fruit. Fruit is being like Jesus. 
he did a great job of explaining this, and so I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast if you missed that, and uh, listen to it if you didn't miss it, because it'll be worth your time. So what I want us to get to today is the next question, um, that statement that if the disciplines are not about the disciplines, they're about Jesus is true, then it must lead us to ask some more questions. The first question is, who's Jesus? You know, if it's about getting to know Jesus and becoming like Jesus, then wouldn't we want to know who Jesus is? And actually, I want to be a little more specific today since we're talking about the spiritual disciplines. We've already concluded that being like Jesus is the true motivation for engaging the disciplines. Then shouldn't we want to know what motivated Jesus? If Jesus is supposed to be the core of my motivation, then wouldn't what I want to know what is at the core of Jesus' motivation? So we want to ask that question today. What made Jesus tick? What drove Jesus? What got Jesus out of the bed every morning? Better yet, the better question, what made Jesus give up his rights as God and become a human being? so that he could ramble around the countryside with 12 men, live a life of poverty and rejection, get betrayed by one of his closest friends, die the most horrific death ever known to mankind, and then return back to his heavenly state with all the benefits and rights of God. If I could figure out what motivated God and a man to do that, don't you think I'd have figured something out? If I could figure out what motivated Jesus to come to earth and die, then don't you think finding the motivations for the disciplines would be a little easier? We're going to go through this uh, passage in Philippians to try and answer these questions. This passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it it reads kind of like a movie in reverse. And uh, you know those movies that start with the end scene and... uh, the classic image of this is Forrest Gump, you know, and it's like Tom Hanks sitting in a white suit on a park bench and uh, there's some feather floating down. I, I don't really know what that was for. But um, he starts on this bench with a box of chocolates and talks to strangers. And the next thing we know, he's you know, like running through a field and then running through a football stadium. And then he's in Vietnam and then he's, you know, catching shrimp. And, and then it ends back with him on the park bench. So we know where we're going before we start and what the whole point of the movie is, what's in between. And that's really how this passage reads. We know the opening, excuse me, we know that we're starting with the attitude of Christ and we move to how his attitude is displayed and his actions. And we end back at the attitude, but we end with the motivation for his attitude. So that's where we're going in this passage. I want to give a little bit of context of what's going on here. Um, this, this letter of Philippians is written by Paul. He's an apostle. He's in jail in Rome. And he's writing to this church in Philippi. And uh, Philippi is a Roman province um, in what is now northeast Greece on the Aegean Sea. And Philippi of, was kind of like the Florida of that day. And that it was where retired military officials in political dignitaries went to retire. And so it was on the other side of the ocean from Rome. And, and so there was a lot of important, powerful people that lived there. And it was a very prominent, established Roman colony. The people there were very proud of their Roman citizenship. They owned 
They, they carried all the rights of a Roman citizen. It was a very Roman culture. Now, what was going on here is the decree of Rome was that Caesar was Lord. This was law. People had to declare this, that Caesar was Lord. Now, the early church had a, had a conflict here because the early church, including the one in Philippi, was now declaring and understood that Caesar was not their savior, but Jesus was their savior. And so they reworded this Caesar is Lord and became, began to declare Jesus is Lord. Now, this obviously has major social and political ramifications. To deny Caesar's supreme authority in their lives and give that power to a man who was crucified at the hands of the Roman government, this is huge. And, this, and Paul is writing this letter and encouraging them with the only way that they're going to survive this tension that they're living in. The answer to their survival is to be united together with the same attitude of mind that Christ has, has as he left heaven's throne, became a man, died and rose from the dead, and returned to heaven. Now in verse 5, that word attitude, in the original language, uh, it wasn't originally written in English, it was written in Greek, and our words don't always match up with the Greek language, and so we come up with our best definition. And that word attitude in our, word, in our scripture actually is kind of better tra- translated thoughts or mind or motivation or heart. And then probably the more clear definition of what is meant by that attitude is one's opinion of themselves. It's one's opinion of oneself. So I don't really have time and painfully don't have time to unpack the next five verses. Um, and, and I hate that because it's probably some of the most beautiful and uh, theologically and doctrinally important passage to our whole faith as believers. Um, but we want to we we try and see this picture from beginning to end of Jesus' motivation. But what these middle passages say is that Christ's attitude, Christ's opinion of himself, was so humble that even though he is God, he laid down his rights as God, became a human, died and rose from the dead, and returned to heaven. Now, why would Christ make this huge, painful, circular journey from heaven to earth and back to heaven again? Now, isn't that our question? Isn't what motivated Christ to make this painful journey what we're trying to figure out because ultimately we want the same level of motivation in our life? The answer we all, we've all been waiting for as we're leading up to what is the question, what is the answer to the question, it's found in verse 11. In verse 11, the last phrase, it says, to the glory of God the Father. It's what motivated Jesus. That was it. It was motivated to bring glory to God the Father. Now, glory of God the Father, you know, what is that? Um, I'm full of questions today, if you haven't figured it out. The definition of God's glory. God's glory is his splendor. Uh, Thank you for that redundant redundancy. God's glory is his splendor. It's the outward manifestation of his attributes. So what is God's glory? It is everything that displays and shows his nature and his character. Anything that defines, reflects, 
demonstrates or describes anything about God is God's glory. So just like the Sistine Chapel is Michelangelo's glory, just like the light bulb was Thomas Edison's glory, just like your kids on their good days are your glory, So we use these kind of lame examples when it comes to describing the glory of God. But what I'm trying to paint a picture of is that God is God's glory. And everything he does to reveal himself is the display of his glory. Let me read that again. God is God's glory, and everything he does to reveal himself is the display of his glory. Now, we could sit here, and I know I could sit here for, from now until the end of time, and that thought would blow my mind. I couldn't really wrap my brain around it. But what I want to help us do is try and create some three specific contexts from Scripture to help understand some, some concrete ways in which God is displaying His glory. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of her chambers, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Nature, creation, displays God's attributes. And if you're looking for some biblical uh, context and motivation to go green, this is it. The glory of God is displayed in nature. The second way God manifests his glory is emphasized in Ephesians, 2, 4, in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. Now, if we focus on that first phrase, we are God's handiwork, we, get the, we come to the reality that we were created to display his glory. And we do that through joining him in the work he is doing and redeeming his creation. So God's glory is in creation. God's glory is us. We share in his glory when he joined him in his work here on earth. Now, Colossians 1, 15 through 22 describes the ultimate manifestation of the attributes of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven or making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, this passage is obviously another one of those huge passages that's so defining of our faith. And we could spend hours and days and we, we spend a lifetime breaking this down. But what I want to do is just give you, again, a brief synopsis of what's going on here. Now, there in verse 15, we see the word image. 
An image is by definition in its original language manifestation or display. It's very similar to the word in Philippians 2.6, which we hear nature. So to, to sum that up in a very, if you're not with me so far with that, it's, it, if, you, if you don't see where I'm going, Christ is the ultimate manifestation of the attributes of God. If God's glory is the manifestation of his attributes, then Christ is the manifestation of God. Christ is by nature God. He created all creation and humanity for the glory of God the Father. And then when God gives us a choice to love or reject him, we ultimately reject God and sin comes into the world. And like a cosmic volcano of our choice, sin spews death and destruction, all that Jesus majestically created for the glory of God. Now, for a brief moment in the story, it looks like that which was supposed to demonstrate God's glory is going to be ruined. But God says, wait! And Jesus, the Son, comes to fix everything and put it back like it is supposed to be so that even sin and death can serve the purpose of displaying the glory of God. So what does all this look like for us? How do we make sense of this in terms of our life? How does this fit into practicing the disciplines to be like Christ? I want to look at a couple diagrams to try and help make this clear. First, this first diagram I'm calling the God pattern. And it's basically Christianity 101. Uh, something that I know I need to hear every day. So for all this to play out, all this that we've been talking about, the glory of God, we have to get this diagram right. We have to believe this and understand it because it's just like our skits of uh, Farmer Brown and the fact that he had to plant and he had to do things in the right order to get fruit. You know, he didn't go pick fruit, then cultivate, then plant a tree, or he didn't go plant a tree, then cultivate, then pick fruit. He had to do it in the right order, cultivation, plant, fruit. So we have to understand that everything begins with God. And in Christ, he creates, saves, and pursues humanity. We respond to the pursuit of God through the rejection or acceptance of him. Now, ultimately, this exists and ends in the glory of God. So the scheme of this life, the picture that we're caught up in right now, is everything begins with God. Christ creates humanity and all things for the glory of God. We mess it up. Christ comes and provides a way for it to be fixed. We get the opportunity to respond to how Christ is fixing all of this. And that ultimately ends everything, regardless, is going to end in the glory of God. It's God, man, man's response, God. When, so we see that it all comes full circle. We have to understand that if God and his glory are the beginning and ending of all things, then for what I do in the middle... My human response to be fruitful, to be like Jesus, then at its center, everything I do, all my motivations, the desire to be like Jesus, at its center, it has to be found in the glory of God. Here's the problem, and it's found in the second diagram. This I'm calling the self pattern, and this pattern looks pretty much the reverse. It starts with humanity, it moves to God. It's some sort of human response, and then it ends with humanity. 
So we see the bookends are no longer God. The bookends are humanity. And this is how all the religious systems of the world operate. And the reality is, this is how most of us follow Christ and go about the Christian life. We start with ourselves. We gain a sense of God. We devise all these plans and rituals that we think will please God and motivate him to move on our behalf. And we think if we do a good job of appeasing God, if we're a good person, then it should all end up in us living a pretty decent life. Now, here's the big problem with this. Here's the big problem with this pattern. If we go back to the word attitude, if we're to be like Jesus, if the motivation of the disciplines is to be like Jesus, and we go back to that word attitude in Philippians 2.5, we understand that Christ's attitude, Christ's view of himself, was to lay his rights down for the glory of God. But in this second pattern that we are all stuck in to some degree, everything points to us, and we see that Christ's attitude, everything pointed to God for his glory. And yet, in this pattern, we are defining our rights. So this is what happens. This is the the opposite. This is what we're doing in this pattern. We are defining our rights for ourselves and then trying to manipulate God to fulfill them. Did you catch that? This is what's happening here. We've decided what's best for us. We have now made God a good luck charm who's going to help us fulfill everything we think is best for us. It is the opposite of who Christ is and what he did for God's glory. Not only have we totally messed up the picture of who God is and who we are at this point when we view the spiritual disciplines as a means by which we motivate God and manipulate God to move on our behalf, not only have we put God and ourselves in the wrong place, we have also undone the foundation for our salvation. We are acting counter to the way we are saved in the first place. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is, in, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desire and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do God's work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So why did God save us? To show the riches of his grace. Go back to verse 7. God saved us in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. He saved us for him. He saved us for his glory. Now, if God is not motivated on our behavior, by our behavior to save us from sin, 
then it is also not motivated by our behavior to grant us with the best possible life we think we deserve. Tim Keller says it so eloquently. If you're avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless and save you, then ironically, excuse me, then ironically you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, model, and helper, but you're avoiding him as Savior. You're trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You are trying to save yourself by following Jesus. That, ironically, is a rejection of the gospel of Jesus. Catch this. It is a Christianized form of religion. It is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. This is why understanding Jesus' motivation is so important when it comes to the disciplines. Because in our zeal to be like Jesus, we can easily get distracted by just doing the things Jesus did. The point is not doing like Jesus. The point is being transformed into the image of Jesus. Here's a, there's a huge difference. The doing is the second pattern, the self-pattern. It's focused all on me. The being is the, is the first pattern in which I submit every area of my life to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, we live in this second pattern as believers, as Christ followers and non-Christ followers. We live in this second pattern because we believe that our greatest dreams for ourselves are greater than the rewards of living for the glory of God. Let me say that again. Ultimately, we live in this second pattern of self because we believe that our greatest dreams for ourselves are greater than the rewards of living for the glory of God. John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Listen to this. But I, Jesus, have come that you, they, you, may have life and have it to the full. Now, life in this passage is not in the medical sense of breathing and walking around. Life is not you sitting there, drinking a cup of coffee, eating a donut, going to work. It's not life in in the terms of the Bible. Life, in these words, in the original translation, equals a relationship with God. How does Jesus glorify the Father? By providing us with the means to live in relationship with God. Jesus was very clear that to be in relationship with God is to be alive. To be out of relationship with God is to be dead in the worst sense of the word. This is going to have to lead us to more questions. Are we living in the self pattern? Are we living in the God pattern? Is our church operating in the self pattern? Is it operating in the God pattern? Specifically, What areas of our life need to be moved from that self-pattern to that God-pattern? What areas of our life are broken, are empty, are fruitless? Because God is not the center of it. Is it our job? Is it our kids and the way we're raising them? Is it our school? Is it our finances? Is it our addictions? Is it our recreation? Is it our marriage? 
What in these areas of our life are we doing for the glory of ourself and not for the glory of God? Because as long as we're operating in any of these areas and the endless others, in the self pattern, we'll never ultimately experience the fruit that God desires for us to have in those areas. I want to encourage you in this. First, this message is for me. I got to tell you, this is the biggest fight of my life. I've been following Christ my entire life. I don't remember a moment that Christ wasn't in my heart and in my mind. But I still need the freedom that comes from knowing this life begins and ends with God. Because I battle so much with the self-pattern that says, I determine how God feels about me. It's just not true. By doing the work of transforming to the image of Christ, engaging the disciplines, this life becomes less and less about me in the here and now. And in the here and now, I get to live in the reality of God's glory. Let me reemphasize that because we're talking about the disciplines. By doing the work of transforming to the image of Christ, by engaging the disciplines, what Jason talked about last week, this life becomes less and less about me and here and now, and I get to live in the reality of God's glory. How could anything I attain on my own be better than the glory of God being manifested in my life? I want to encourage you that Paul wrote this letter to a group of people who were being persecuted. They were being martyred. Their life wasn't easy. Their life wasn't pretty. It wasn't comfortable. But it was beautiful. It expressed the glory of God because this was a group of people and Paul was pushing them on and saying, don't forget that this life is not about you. This life is just, our life is to be like Christ. Our life is for the glory of God. Nate, if you and the band want to come up. I want us to, as we finish, I want to look at... uh, Philippians 2.10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what? Say it with me. For the glory of God the Father. Let's say it again together. For the glory of God the Father. My prayer is that this phrase, this reality, it'll ring in your ears, it'll ring in your mind, it'll ring in your heart for the rest of your life. It's my prayer that whether you're in school, you're at your desk at work, you're riding your bike, you're changing a dirty diaper, you're playing on Facebook, whatever you're doing, that everything can be to the glory of God the Father. And here it is, that word every. It's crucial because that word tells us it is not a matter of if our lives will be for the glory of God. It's just a matter of when. Are we going to allow the glory of God to invade our lives now? Are we going to wait until the choice is taken away? And when we we have to bow our knee with all creation? This is the crux of life. This is where we rest. This is where the disciplines happen. 
The disciplines are so much more than doing like Jesus. They are the opportunity to say yes to the glory of God in our lives now. Because after every knee is bowed, God will step to the right and he'll take with him everyone that chose his glory here and now. And those who chose themselves here and now, God will honor their choice for all eternity and lead them to the worst imaginable faith, an existence of themselves with the absence of the glory of God. Whether you've been a Christ follower your whole life or today the first time you've ever even thought about it or heard this message, we're about to enter into a time of communion. And as we remember the person of Christ in this cracker and in this juice, I want to encourage you to let this partaking of the sacraments be your next step in doing all things for what? The glory of God the Father. Let's say it again together. To the glory of God the Father.